Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. This is episode 739. This is my interview with Sam Conniff Allende, Be More Pirate. Guys, enjoy the show. The biggest mistake we can make is to believe that the way things are is the way things have to be. That is Sam's brief quote or outline of what his book, Be More Pirate, is all about. G'day, guys, and welcome to another interview here at the Hidden Wire. Hope you're having a lovely day. It is a beautiful wet day here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. We've had a bit of a, a dry spell, so it's lovely, fresh rain. It's just greening everything up. It's just beautiful. Hope it's uh, lovely where you are too, guys, probably on the other side of the world, maybe here in Australia as well. Whatever you're doing, hope you're kicking ass. Guys, this is a really cool chat with Sam about being more pirate. There's couple of things that I took away from this. Um, actually, there's more than a couple of things, but one is, you know, breaking the rules, but then standing up for what you believe in and following through, making sure you're active in your pursuit of making a difference whilst you're breaking those rules. And we get complacent. Life isn't about living the status quo. It's about shaking things up. It's about trying to do things better. That's progress. And uh, that's what I love about this conversation. Sam also talked about values right at the end there. He said, um, you know, think about one thing that you would stand up for, that you would fight for till death. And what is that? What is that value? His was fairness. I um, put on the spotlight trying to ask myself that question. It was very hard. You know, what is the one thing you wouldn't walk by, that you wouldn't want to see, that you would stand up for and fight black and blue? to make sure it happens. And for me, I think it is peace and joy. Um, it's a really interesting question. Maybe ask yourself that question. Plenty of other questions I'm sure you'll get from this interview with Sam Conniff Allende. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Sam Conniff Allende. How are you? Thank you very, very much for having me on. I'm really well. Thank you very much. How are you? It's cold over there, isn't it? <laughs> it's February in London, so yes. Yeah, so what, what are you drinking? Cold, what are you drinking? Iced tea? I just... <laughs> Yeah, of course. I'm drinking drinking a nice cup of tea. It's, uh, it's or is it uh, Scotch whiskey or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. An Irish tea. Um, no, it's eleven a.m. in the morning. This is literally British tea time, so um, it's very nice, very good timing to be having a chat. Well, I'm having a cup of tea too, and a nice warm tea actually, which is not unusual for me, even though it's warm here in Australia. But where um, in Australia are you? I'm on the Sunshine Coast. Yeah. Um, nice. Which is a beautiful part. Have you have you travelled here? Uh, no, I'm hoping to. I have had more. I, I think Australia is probably the country that I've heard from more pirates in response to the book than any other. Um, I've had such an interesting response from various startups, individuals, social entrepreneurs, businesses. So I've had lots of invitations to come down there, and I'm trying to trying to pull them all together to then justify a, a trip because I've got two little girls here. So it would I'd have to try and keep it as short as I can, unless I was going to bring them. So a bit of logistical planning, but yeah, this is hopefully the year that I'm going to make it down and, and meet some of your Australian pirates. Yeah, bring it over, bring it over, come and visit. We'll um, happily have you. And um, it's, Thanks I don't know if we're, if we're pirates or convicts, but um, that um, is a good way, good segue into into the book, Be More Pirate. That's your book. That's what you're yeah. on the show. And that's what I'm, I'm really eager to get into with you. Um, how to take on the world and win. How people that's can leave their mark. What, what's, what's the purpose of the book? What, what made you write Be More Pirate? 
Well, I've been, you know, this has always been the narrative of my my life, really. I am, um, you know, always looking for my my hidden why. I always knew that I was trying to make a difference in the world, right from when I was a teenager in my first my first business. And there was always this sense of trying to make a change, trying to make a difference. Even when my first business was putting on raves in car parks, and you know, I, I had no idea what the purpose of dancing till dawn was, but I, I had this plan that there was a kind of higher meaning to it. And then I spent the last. 20 years really with different social enterprise startups that were all hinged around you know creating benefit for young people particularly young people on the edges of society those who've been overlooked or or, or really stitched up as, as is really the case i think a lot of the time and what do you mean by stitched I, was tra- up? I mean that there is a certain segment of, i mean that um with uh, incredibly reliable reliable accuracy you can predict the young people who are going to suffer the consequences of an unfair society um the kids who are born with less advantages than than others and and who education will let down more with more likelihood um and who will arrive in a place where they'll be unable to afford you know the 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 chance of a house or, or, or equal opportunities mm. and it happens really really early on you know those kids that are identified as being problematic in a in a classroom will, will arguably be the kids most likely to be finding themselves excluded or or on the edges of you know the justice system and a lifetime of, of benefits you know we systematically set up the same groups in society again and again and again mm. and uh, and then i think I observe we end up blaming them for it when they reach adulthood, and I think that's one of the great injustices of our of our time. And it's what I've been trying to right by providing opportunities to those young people who don't get them, and, and course correct their 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 trajectory um, to give them greater opportunities. And that's what the, business, the main business I've been spending most of my life running has, has done. We um, we once got some. It's a it's a great big warehouse in the middle of Brixton, which is a tough part of London, and we have exactly the same setup in South Africa and Johannesburg. And to our clients, it looks like an agency, like any kind of marketing agency would. And our clients are great and range from PlayStation to Netflix. And they come to us for cool campaigns and creative thinking and content that will help them sell more of their stuff. Um, But the way we produce it, the way that we are a shit hot agency is that Hmm. to our young people, we're... You know, somewhere between a, a youth club and a training program and an alternative to school and education. And we see hundreds of kids, you know, on a week-to-week basis, tens of thousands in a year. And they get access to the space and they get to work on real-life projects, meet real-life clients. And something transformational happens to them in, in that they start to take themselves seriously because they're taken seriously. And we see huge leaps from kids who are on the edges of school exclusion to becoming, you know, young adults taking themselves really really seriously and and in this kind of like dynamic melting pot um incredible work is produced for the clients and so we continue being able to deliver this work to young people it's a it's pretty really effective mm. it's a fantastic model and i've uh, i've loved leading the the, the business so what, what's your connection there is it um i started it it was my um yeah to, I, to, no, to have the um the desire to, to have that impact on, you know, on those on, on youth and and you know that particular demographic, I suppose. Well, this is this is both how I got to the book and then understood the the hidden. I mean, literally, it was hidden why. It's why when I was introduced to you, the idea struck me so much. I had said at the outset, I set up when I was in my early twenties, hmm. and you know, I was still very much a young person. I said one day 
when I'm 40, I will step aside because 40 is too old to, to run something helping young people. But partly because in my early 20s, you know, 40 was as likely to happen as the apocalypse. You know, it's just so far away. It didn't even exist. Yeah. Um, and then as I was turning 40 and I was now a dad and I was really thinking about why do I do all this stuff? And the business had really grown and, you know, we'd won all the awards there were from best social enterprise in the UK to, you know, um, multiple industry was helping, you know, create a shift in business. And I'd advise government and other business for how everyone can work in a more purposeful and profitable way. Um, and I'd begun to... A, think about what next, which is what led me to the book. Um, you know, how can we create more change? You know, what, what have I learned from all of this? And how can I give that away at a bigger level? And I also had to really go and understand why the hell had I done all this? And I uh, went on a journey of discovery, firstly, about my old man, who died when I was five. And, and I knew that had a big influence on me, but I never really quite understood how profoundly. Hmm. And I really began to look into it for the first time rather than just kind of bottle it up as a bit of trauma and I discovered that uh, my journey had almost exactly mirrored his in his um, 20s he'd uh, taken a massive career pivot and he'd started working with young people although in a formal education sense uh, and then he'd had this idea for an innovative approach to his, he'd learnt law and he set up a law firm that was about the community and it interacted with the community and lo and behold he'd actually had set up his first office on Brixton High Street literally within the spitting distance of where my first office had been you know and then that was around the time Brixton was infamous for the Brixton riots and you know made famous by the clash and, and others and uh, then he'd really made a name for himself with this kind of breakthrough TV show, which, which has an element in it, which is exactly like the thing that made my agency, you know, uh, well known. Mm. Um, and so there was this incredible mirroring, uh, going on of stories that had never been shared because it was such a grief to the family. No one really ever spoke about it. So I yeah, well. somehow internalized this journey, um, and yeah, then had this big, big hmm. decision to make about, you know, well, what do I really do next that, that doesn't follow the next part of his life, you know, and that he, he died pretty suddenly. Yeah. Um, and then what do I do next? Hmm. So I've really spent quite a lot of time thinking about why. And I was processing all that at the same time I was transitioning out of the company at the same time that it was 2016. And the world was, you know, felt like it was turning on its axis, especially if you were in Britain at the time. And, and the, the, the referendum and Brexit decision that we went through whilst also looking to the states and the president they elected and so it was all of that experience all of that questioning uh, all of that stuff that went into you know me shouting all of this into the empty pages of a book that i kind of thought no one would ever read but it was, it was an exercise in then trying to process and work all of that out so that's that's all into the book you've, you've... yeah 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 which makes it sound pretty heavy it's not that heavy so haven't <laughs> you quite... um through uh, how long was that sort of transition then like that period was it was it a couple of years that you were sort of going through this? No, I set out that we'd do it over 12 months. And that, um, right. I knew the team that were going to take over. I'd managed and mentored the young woman who I knew was going to be the, the next boss. And we set out a 12-month plan that each quarter that year I'd do a day less in the office. And okay. so by the end of the year, um, I'd be done and they'd be they'd have taken over. And every morning I set myself a challenge that I would write for three or four hours so that the plan was when we hit December, I wouldn't uh, – I'd have finished the book, I'd have finished my role at Liberty and a new team would be taking over and I'd come into a new year with a, with a new career and uh, something else to do. The, the addition was that my wife got pregnant. So 
um, it ended up being that that weekend of December, that week of December, I got my P45, my leaving slip, my tax leaving slip from my company that I'd founded, yeah. the same week that my book manuscript was due, the same week that my second daughter was born. So it was this you know, incredible, you know, like Jeez, the motivation force of a mm. deadline. Yeah, Jesus Christ. More timed. Yeah, done well. So it, was so, it was so busy that I didn't have, um, uh, I didn't come into the new year with any fixed income. Um, and, you know, whilst the business had been successful, it's a social enterprise, right? So I didn't cash out or anything at all. So it was incredible, you know, the, the, the burning bridge kind of motivator of like, fuck, now, what am I, know, do? I really, really have to make this work. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of people, yeah, like to go, like the idea of, of doing something like that, but the whole idea of trying to make it work and not knowing how to. Um, scares the shit out of people. Well, it was interesting because I, I felt familiar with it because, um, you know, I'm sure we all kind of have this notion of being a grown-up and wondering when you're going to grow up and then realizing that technically you are a grown-up. You know, I was so in my mind, I, I remembered that I've had multiple startups over the years and I thought, all right, great, you know, I can do it again. But actually doing it again, having turned 40, having two children, having a, a wife who's a full-time mom, a house. You know, so there was this, part of me that knew instinctively how to you know take the leap and make a risk and, and create something out of nothing yeah sure fine and know that the principles and what i hold dear is the most important thing and you'll make the rest happen but to do it with this new like level of pressure actually that that month of january like the 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 shit dark cold long month of january no income a brand new baby you know very very tired uh, wife who's worked incredibly hard to bring this life about a book that's not out yet so we don't know whether it's going to succeed and the business that really had determined my identity for the best part of two decades i had the biggest shock uh, to my system ever and I've, I've never really suffered with anything remotely like anxiety and i suddenly found myself having an identity crisis you know which is exactly the wrong mindset you need to be in when you're taking that kind of leap and this is this is after you've written the book you're having this this internal battle yeah, this yeah, identity yeah. crisis battle it was it was the worst time because at least the book was done. But I was beginning to get ready for the PR and the marketing exercise. So exactly when you need to be like on your game, out talking this up. And I knew that I needed to pick up some consultancy work. So you know I needed to be selling myself. And suddenly I didn't have a team. You know, Liberty had got quite big in the UK. It was more than a hundred people strong team, and and it grew to a similar size in Africa. So I was used to having a finance team and an admin team and a PA. And like, yeah. and here I am suddenly like up at one a.m. feeding a baby, trying to make a fucking website <laughs> you know like raise an invoice and open a bank account it was a it was a real um that's pretty cool it was a very it was a good exercise in kind of returning to to ground zero yeah i mean once i got through the the very difficult why am i doing it, who am i thing um i found it really a really really healthy exercise to do so that was january just gone yeah uh 12 months ago now yeah my daughter's just turned one do you feel um did you feel a bit more adult in that experience or <laughs> you still wonder what that actually is? Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting. <laughs> I kind of thought with every made, you know, those big life stages, like maybe we getting married or starting a business or, you know, like uh, having to watch a business collapse or maybe having that, you know, and no, I, I, I still don't particularly feel like a grown up. Do you look at, do you look at, or do you remember maybe grown ups in your life as being adult and going, you know, I look at my, my father as an example and go always looked at his, him as an adult and his friends as adults and now I'm sort of older and I don't really know if um, 
if they are adults anymore or if I am. And yeah. then I think maybe having kids sort of helps that feeling of being an adult a little bit, but really, am I? Like, well, That was part of what came out of the um, period of introspection about my dad. He, he was the age that I am now when he died, and my, I was the age my daughter is. So I look at her, she's five, I'm 42. And I think, fuck, you know, when I was little, I thought, well, he was an old man, so he died. And to think that I would lose what I have now and, and lose her, hmm. I, I mean, I find it That's devastating. Pretty, pretty and so, no, I mean, if he felt like anything like I do, you don't, you don't feel, you know, at all, or like you've lived half your life, or you feel you're, what? What? No, not at all. Um, so whilst it didn't make me necessarily feel like a grown-up, it certainly sharpened my prioritization and I realized that you know I don't really remember anything about this man uh, I certainly don't remember and will never know what he thought or what he sat around worrying about or what all of his unfulfilled intentions are or you know all the things that really fill up most of our time hmm. all I do know is what he did the important relationships that he had and what he made happen and it just really really made it hit home with me that you know uh, most of what you kind of think and sit around worrying about doesn't add up to anything that's going to make a long-term difference. And all, all that matters is what remains. You know, what are the actions that are going to remain? Yeah, that's a pretty good point. Pretty, um, yeah, pretty profound sort of lessons. Speak to me about um, just going back to being an adult. But I mean, obviously at Liberty, you worked with a lot of young people, youth. Yeah. Um, so I want to sort of touch on how you guided them through that because that is a pretty difficult thing to accept not only you are trying to figure out your identity and find your place in the world and rebelling against um everything else because you you sort of think you're on top of it when you sort of deep down inside probably aren't um there's a lot of changes going on in that life like how do you how did you help youth realize that you know there were stages to it and and now um Again, not feeling like an adult, but having the benefit of hindsight, I can see how they joined up. The first stage, so I started it when I was 23, 24, hmm. um, and the first kind of five years of it now, I would say, are the, are the really classic saviour complex, which really, if we're honest, uh, affects many entrepreneurs, and particularly social entrepreneurs, where they, we think we're trying to set the world right, but really we're trying to set ourselves right. We haven't worked that out yet. Yeah. And I yeah. was, you know... There was no real business model, but there was a there was a mission, and the mission was something I could externalise that kind of I could hide in. And I think you know, entrepreneurs do this a lot because there's something we respect the journey of an entrepreneur so much that we will then forgive uh, things that we wouldn't otherwise. So, oh, you know, he's working weekends. Oh, he's working weekends. Oh, he's put that in front of other relationships. You know, stuff that I wasn't actually emotionally mature enough to do. If, if in other instances I'd been running away from it all, I'd have looked like a child. But because I'd built this business and this business that was helping people, I was forgiven a whole bunch of sins and, 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 and could hide in that space. Hmm. And I was so dedicated to benefiting these young people. I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I'd drop a client project to turn up at magistrate's court, or I'd, you know, drop a project or a piece of work that needed finishing if I had to go around to some kid's house and help them, you know, intervene, um, getting them out of their house or something. So it was actually much more classic youth work or social work yeah, right. um, stuff. And you know, yeah. I didn't realise, but what I was trying to do was save myself or save the the, the, the child in me that felt it had been so. Um, you know, let down hmm. and and then I began to get a sense of that probably when I was hitting around 30 and you began to realize that you've got to really watch out that 
so many people who set out to help others are trying to help themselves and then there's something indirectly patronizing about that relationship and by this point I'd met you know, maybe thousands of kids and I began to see what really made a difference and it wasn't really me that made the difference it was the space that we created and we housed them in and um, yeah, right. the, big, the biggest lesson for me that was when the business had grown and we were in multiple units in a in a kind of work space um, what happened when we created a space for the young people which we thought was the right thing to do benevolently speaking uh, we had the first ever fight and we didn't even realise how lucky we are we'd, we'd get teachers or youth workers or, or justice officers or whatever coming along and they, they could never believe the environment that we created how many young people being so productive even yeah. if they'd been like mm. extremely tough or excluded or gang involved or whatever when yeah. they came to us they, they, they changed um, as soon as we made the young people space and the adult space we suddenly had, had trouble we had a fight and you know and, and what we realised was I, you know, I'd love to say it was me and you know my great leadership and inspiration or the chats I have with these kids, but fuck that. It was just the, um, it was the space that we created for them to come into and the the opportunity for osmosis within that space of a professional experience and an environment that allowed them to be listened to, to be taken seriously, to meet other people like them, but also meet real professionals, and they they absorbed it. And in this space that they began to own and consider as their own they had a transformational effect. Um, one of them summed it up to me. He came back years later to see me and tell me about where he'd got to. And he said his memory of liberty is that of a transformation engine. And I think when I began to realize that this wasn't down to me, it was down to the space that we created, I began to see myself as less important. Probably the second, the maturing stage that I realized if I was going to give this benefit, it wasn't about me showing up every day. It was about me making this a sustainable and safe space, which meant making it a profitable space. So I began to really focus on the business model that we had um, and how could I grow it and make it secure and not just be um, reliant on, on my sheer force of will every single day. But mm. actually there was a <laughs> there was like some money in the bank and some good people who worked there so that it could have a longer lifespan. And that was the beginning of the journey of me growing up as an entrepreneur and as a leader and the business growing up and becoming the sustainable, sustainable and successful thing that it is now. And so it means you, you have to make some compromises. It's a little bit less chaotic. We work with a little bit less gang-involved kids, but there's a much better system involved. And, you know, we know that we don't chase kids down the high street and actually if there is something really deeply wrong in their housing situation that will put them in touch with partners who can help them but where we do the stuff that we do really well that's what liberty is you know really really strong that's, so, that's pretty amazing yeah mm. yeah yeah well done. Really proud of it. so next chapter Thanks, next yes. chapter you're walking on um you're working you're working with pirates now i am yeah yeah so is this a story like about what you went through being rebellious being different being fighting the status quo and how you did things or is it is it more about how you just see the world and how you well, want it kind of started to... off as the former and then went to the latter I, mm. I thought i'd write a book to i've always really admired that line i think it's eleanor roosevelt who says you know if you want to know what you should really do next you should find out the thing that scares you most yeah and so leaving liberty scared me um uh, I wanted a project that would occupy me. I wanted to write because I'm dyslexic and, and have a chip on my shoulder about not going to university. So I kind of wanted to prove something. Yep. And I also wanted to do something on my own because, you know, Liberty had been fantastically you know, successful and highly commended and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was very, it was absolutely a team effort. And I'd begun to wonder, you know, 
was it what, what was down to me? Could I make something happen on my own? So a book fulfilled all of those things. And obviously there's a you know, big ego kind of part, I think, of writing a book. And hmm. uh, again, that thing of, you know, what remains if I'm not around, you know? So I then wrote a book. I started, I started a book and made the proposal and got the book deal for the most boring, <laughs> most boring book ever. It was going to be called Purpose First. And it was an exponition of, you know, the change in, uh, capitalism and model business, uh, modern business models, moving towards a more kind of purpose-first or mission-led approach. Okay. And you know, I really believe in this, and I think there's lots of examples of businesses pushing in this direction. There's a real need for it, and I think we've begun collectively to understand that the negative output of business, really, you know, from the latter part of the 20th century, has contributed to the climate crisis and, and, uh, and multiple challenges and social inequality, and that we need a different system. But you know, I think that 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 debate needs a needs a bit of an injection of new energy anyway. And I was kind of preaching to the converted, and uh, and I I still work with a lot of young entrepreneurs and a lot of young people. And so I was workshopping some of the material. And I was talking to a group of young guys about it, and they were like almost yawning back at me. And they're like, "What's happening <laughs> to you? You know, these, these sessions are usually like, you know, we've got Sam, and you know, like your arms are everywhere, and you're explaining your ideas and what you didn't. Like you're always telling us about pirates. You know, where are all the pirates? And I realized that the metaphors and the excitement and the, the, the rebel streak of everything that I've always been interested in is still a bit that interests me. And I was trying to, I was trying to write a grown-up book, like to go back to that point. Yeah, honestly, right. Was, that's really, that's was, really cool. I was, I was leaving. I was like, I must write a grown-up business book. You're trying to, <laughs> I, trying to fit into something that, yeah, you really didn't yeah. need to. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote that down on a piece of paper, went back to my desk, what, what happened, where are all the pirates? And, and then I started thinking, well, you know, actually that, that world of changing business, I'm, I'm not that inspired by them anyway. I, I, I find it quite hard to really find uh, examples of the kind of leadership that I think the world needs at the head of any organisation, any government or any uh, business. You know, I think there's actually more of a vacuum of imagination than there is you know, demonstrable leadership that's going to right the wrongs that we're facing. Hmm. Uh, but when I look at the leadership I see in young people, in the young entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs I've met the world over, that's exactly why I find the leadership that I think is required. So they became my metaphor for pirates. I started talking about a younger generation with new ideas, challenging the status quo. And actually, if we look to them a bit more than we are and we look a bit less to leadership and perhaps we we try to accelerate the transition of power between this these, these changing generations and mindsets, mm. that we might get closer to the solutions we need a little bit quicker. And then I went to the British Library and the Greenwich Maritime Museum and I started you know, thinking, well, how can I extend this metaphor about pirates? You know, what else is there? And that's when, you know, you've, you've seen uh, the book. I, I happened to discover that the history that we know of pirates is only half the truth. And that there's another, even more interesting and engaging and important part of their story that was systematically written out of the history books by the establishment at the time, which made them not just a good metaphor for now, but actually not just the kind of rogues we think we know and love, but, but fundamentally excellent role models of how a generation creates a new social contract. Um, at the same time as tearing down some of the frustrating and problematic and out of date rules of the of the of the, of the establishment that we face. Hmm. Yeah, because you look at some of the um, successful businesses out there of the past or entrepreneurs, and they seem very pirate. And the one that comes to mind, obviously, is Richard Branson for me in the way he yes. he did things. Yes. Yeah. Certainly. 
And so throughout history, we've had these people that have, have done like that. But is there a bigger wave of pirates coming through now than, than ever before? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Branson you know, famously dressed as a pirate when he was taking on British Airways as as, yeah, right. as Virgin. Um, Steve Jobs, you know, famously put the pirate flag above um, the team that created the Mac Classic when they were taking on IBM. Hmm. But, you know, I don't think anyone would call Virgin a, a pirate business now. No. Um, I, don't, I don't think anyone would call Apple a pirate business. They've totally become the, the mainstream. They've totally become the Navy that they used to fight against. And I think that is the truth of piracy. It's not really a permanent place. It is a catalyst for change. And the the pirate model is one where you push at the edges. In fact, you kick at the edges in a way that creates waves that over time possibly become ripples and over time influence the center. And it's an opportunity for creating change that's different from the, the, the ones we normally do. So, Is that because the pirate know, the, model... You know, to really shake things up, you have to be pirateish, and I guess we can get into what it means to be a pirate a bit more in a second. But yeah, I think know, that is the case. I do. Yeah. I think the literal. So, you know, pirate radio literally um, was born in the United Kingdom when there was a total monopoly on broadcast. There was two radio stations entirely controlled by the BBC, a state-backed monopoly. And it wasn't serving an audience who desperately, and it was the height of the 60s, you know, mm. and all you got was gardening and classical music. And so these <laughs> ships um, took uh, to sea just outside of coastal waters and broadcast, and very quickly, within a year or two, had a third of the country listening to them. And they invented a new commercial model, and, you know, they laid the basis for commercial radio. And then, you know, and all the evolutions of that into, into commercial entertainment media. And, you know, we, we christened it Pirate Radio, and it had a very, very positive influence. The same goes for the dawn of, you know, the internet. Netflix is based on the model of Pirate Bay. When Jobs was asked by the entire music industry what to do about music piracy, he showed them uh, LimeWire, and that became, you know, iTunes. So I discovered some pirate economists in my research, and mm. they argue this really clearly, that it's not just a, a fun metaphor for rebellion and that sometimes it's good to be pirate. There's an essential role that piracy plays. And it's either when uh, there's a need for new territories to be discovered, because pirates will do that really well, and you look to the advances in biotechnology you know there's always been more rapid advances in kitchen laboratories of pirate pioneers than there has been by big pharma who you know sometimes is not in their interests to create new 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 discoveries um uh, or it's when things stagnate like exactly in that story of the the the, the stagnated broadcast industry and then pirates play a really interesting role unblocking blocked systems Mm. So these are the two real functions of piracy. But once the territory has been discovered, you, you have a different mindset, which then begins to populate it and create infrastructure. Or once the system's been unblocked, then actually you need people to come in and, and, and fulfill the system so that the role of the pirate moves on. Yeah. So it's a, it's a dynamism and it's a, it's a catalytic form for, for instigating change. And, and that's why I think the, the need for pirates has returned in 2019, because <laughs> we both need to push out into new territories and find new models of doing business and organizing ourselves and using the opportunities of democracy that aren't quite here yet. And we also need to unblock some of the systems we've got where we're really still operating on a 20th century model um, in a 21st century environment. It's irrelevant. Do you think there's, I mean, obviously, with our interconnectivity as a global population now, 
a lot of people out there, and I guess you probably see it firsthand, a lot of youth are out there and, you know, they want to be pirates, they want to shake things up, they've got ideas um, and technology, everything's moving so rapidly. I, I sort of feel that perhaps there's maybe too many pirates out there and maybe we're just trying to create change that's not needed right now, whereas in the past it was a, a sort of more gradual thing, you know, there were one or two people out there doing stuff, seeing these things that were in need and, and making those changes, but now things are happening so quick, it, it it almost seems unnecessary that you're, you're creating change only to have it change again tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I, w- I would agree with that. And I, so I try to um, look at this more deeply because, you know, A, yes, you run the risk of everyone creating change and there's just chaos. But also, um, look at what happens. And, you know, when we have, you know, if we're calling for a rebellion and we're saying things need to change, then we need to think ahead as well. Because what usually happens, and, and if you look to everything from, you know, some of our greatest heroes of rebellion, you know, regardless of your politics, whether it's from Nelson Mandela to Che Guevara, you know, neither one of those rebellions looks so good 10 years later. You know, the ANC doesn't necessarily represent the, the values of, of, of the principles of democracy for freedom for South Africa now. Hmm. And so how do you stop the, the dream and the promise of change then, you know, becoming corrupted down the line, as, as, as is, is the case again and again and again throughout history? So, there's two responses here and what I really put them into was this kind of framework um, for what seemed to be the thing that makes the pirates different. Why did they take on the world and win for such a prolonged period of time and why did they have so many innovations that have really helped improve the world and how did they not get corrupted? Um, and I found these, these, these five stages that I think answer both that question and the one for, yes, you don't just need you know, exhausting, endless change. Hmm. And I put them in the book and the the first is the act of rebellion you know breaking something and and, and challenging something and the the flag that that represents and the kind of creative act that 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 represents i think it's picasso who says no great work of art begins without first an act of destruction but like you say if it was just that then where would we get um and you know people ask me a lot you know well it it surely isn't donald trump a pirate etc etc and you know the answer there is no, he's a dickhead. And the, the interesting bit comes with the following stage is that the bit that really, really makes the Golden Age of Pirates so worth looking at and not the Somali pirates or Chinese pirates or Barbary pirates or the other kinds of pirates is they didn't just break the rules. They didn't just reject the rules of society. They rewrote them. And mm. for everything they challenged, they created something new. And this turns it into a creative act. And not everybody can rewrite rules. This, 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 this turns it into something productive. Um, and so when they were pushing back against, you know, most of them came from the Merchant Navy or the Royal Navy, uh, where they were deeply stratified and subjugated systems where you were rarely paid or compensated in any way, they created a transparent and fair pay system where regardless of gender or ethnicity, there was no pay gap. And they created mm, a right. workplace compensation system where if you were injured, as, as it was likely you might be, rather than be left for dead, um, you received remuneration. And they invented one of the first systems of social insurance on earth, you yeah. know. Yeah. And both both of these things are now fair pay and and social insurance are now you know laws you know rights that we have whether they're fully delivered on or not, and at the same time they you know invented a new system of democratic organisation like the likes of which the world had never seen before truly representative democracy where even women and people of colour had a say in the matters at hand so a form of self determination you're the only place on earth where a woman might be afforded a position of leadership or opportunity and uh, any kind of you know, equal remuneration was on board a pirate ship, the only organization like that in the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they were remarkable, actually, for what they represented and mm. then the leadership they represented that others followed. So 
that would only come about when uh, a group of individuals stand up and fight for something. And, and, and in here, we found principles of organization, of redistribution of power, that then meant they were almost uncorruptible. Because if the, if the captain did, you know, become a tyrant, he was accountable to a crew who could vote him out at any minute. You know, if, if there was a, a, an amount of money that had been found, you know, in the way that lots of our, you know, the great promises get then corrupted, well, that couldn't happen because everybody had equal say over it. So they really did design long-term and sophisticated organizations that fought back against the predation of power or the, the, the corruption of greed. And, you know, I, I find this remarkable. So I broke it down into these five stages of, of rebel, rewrite, reorganize, redistribute, and, and retell. Um, so it's not just breaking it and, and really, you know, thinking there's something wrong with the current system or product or service or whatever it might be that we're looking at, but it's about yep. then providing an alternative solution that could actually work better, not just for the individual or individuals, but for the, the collective. Exactly. They weren't just tearing down the rules of an old and corrupt and broken system. They were laying the foundations for, for new ones and, you know, that the series of of things they created wasn't because they were deliberately this progressive organization that said, right, we're going to rewrite the rules of the future by having fair pay and an and equal say. Um, they were doing what was right for them. And because this, this the most interesting and surprising aspect to come out of all my research into pirates was how unbelievably accountable they were. And it's probably the last word that you'd, you'd put upon them, but because they were fighting fairness in an unfair time, because they were creating equality in an unequal time, they then were out on their own. And you can't then sit around bitching about the man or complaining about the broken rules because it's down to you now to, to write them. And now it's down to you to uphold them. So It's probably part of the ego that jumps in there too, isn't it? Because you, yeah, you sort yeah, of go out yeah, there and you have full, like if you do it, if you are a genuine pirate, I guess, you sort of have full belief in what you're doing and you stand by it. You have to stand by your word. Yeah, yeah. And if you... Um, you know, uh, this doesn't take away from the fact that their business model was largely stealing stolen Spanish gold or, you know, the, the moralities of the, of the time, which we can debate. But they were, you know, through the lens of the 18th century, very different to how we'd see them now. So with a degree of moral relativism in place, yeah, you've got incredible uh, egos and, and kind of entrepreneurs creating kind of what were the unicorns of their time. These you know, incredible new systems led by these figureheads whose names were known around the world and they represented a new way of doing things. And so, of course, the, the working classes of the world looked towards them. And for you know, working class women, there was almost no one you could point to except the likes of Anne Bonny and these pirate queen legends who were fighting for equality, fairness, and representing equality and fairness. Mm. Um, the same as, you know, captains like Black Caesar. You know, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't have anybody within an organizational structure that was, you know, uh, of, you know, uh, released slave invited into a, a society and given equal, equal, equal rights. That, you know, we're 150 years before the abolition of slavery. So that sent ripples out around the world in, in recognition of what these organizations could stand for. When they took these organizing principles off the boats and onto land uh, in the Bahamas, in an island called Nassau, for nearly a decade, there was a proto-democratic republic for pirates built on these principles. Um, at the beginning of the 18th century, you know, the, the, the century of revolution, before the French Revolution, before colonial America kicked out the Brits, you know, the threat of revolution in, in England is really, you know, trying to be withheld and subdued. The Russian Revolution, I mean, 
this is an age and suddenly there's this petri dish of formative democracy taking place mm. i mean fucking hell that is what was the threat to the establishment and that that is the threat that we have the opportunity to do you know complaining about the lot we've got but putting up with it is you know it doesn't really get us anywhere inaction is the real weapon of mass destruction setting out a course and trying out and experimenting with new rules of organizing is is the way to to threaten and challenge a self-interested establishment so eventually the pirate threat was crushed not because they were you know rogues who'd been stealing at sea because that's what the british empire was built on um that was crushed because they threatened the the early empire uh, and the establishment mm. it's pretty remarkable isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe it, mate. I mean, every every page I turned is like, you know, the the the, the average age of pirates is like twenty eight. So they were the millennials of the eighteenth century. The yeah. challenges they <laughs> faced feel so similar to those which which we do. You know, they're they're, they're entrepreneurial, organisational things on on ships. You know, and it's not just the innovations I've said. They had uh, what we would now term as halacracy, like a, a, a dynamic form of organisational structures. They had uh, same sex marriage. You know, that was so sophisticated it even had an inheritance clause in it. Um, um, uh, what else? Pirates invented the cocktail. You know, it, we think it was the old-fashioned in, in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds in in New York, but it wasn't. Uh, Sir Francis Drake put together rum, mint, lime, and sugar, um, and basically invented a mojito. <laughs> so there's, you know, they were <laughs> incredibly creative, innovative community. And I think um, the truth of history should be that they're somewhere on a spectrum with, the, you know, the civil rights movement or the suffragettes or even the levelers fighting for workers' rights. That's 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 where they belong. The social revolutionaries and working class heroes who have been massively overlooked and misunderstood because, you know, the, the, those who, you know, win the day write the history books. So with this with with this book, the readers out there, who, who is the ideal reader of this book? I mean, is it? Is it the younger people that are, you know, having ideas and, and wanting to disrupt what they see as sort of the status quo or commonplace or complacency or whatever they're passionate about? It's written with two audiences in mind and, yeah. and they represent my dual experience. So yes, one absolutely is this this pirate mindset. And it's mm. really not determined by age. I think it's it's more prevalent the younger you get, but it's, you know, I, I've met loads of 50, 60 year old pirates. You know, the, yeah. the mindset is there and, and, and this has been going on for a long time. But, um, whilst that's probably the minority of 40, 50, 60 year olds, it's probably the majority of, of 20 somethings, you know, yeah. there are many 20 somethings that I've met that don't have some kind of side hustle on the go or are that mm. scared of, you know, creating something or, you know, know that we have to fight against unfairness within business models. You know, these ideas are much more natural to them. Um, so it's the mindset. Yes, absolutely. And to them, it's a call to arms, you know, to rise up, to seize this opportunity, to not wait, you know, do not be waiting for permission from anybody. Yeah. This, is, hmm. this is your time. But there is a secondary audience too, which is the, the generation uh, who are a bit older, wondering, you know, what's coming next. And, you know, can this new generation, can they be trusted? And to them, it's a warning that this is a moment to be harnessed and not overlooked and at your peril, at your peril, mistake what this is as a, you know, passing trend. I think this is a, um, talk about the book, you know, uh, something as, as profound as Maslow, you know, the, if, you know, if we're really talking about wise, you know, the, 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 the Maslow's hierarchy of needs hasn't really been challenged as a system for understanding your why for, well, since it was written seven years ago. And I think that it has now got an upgrade. And I think this, this pirate mentality 
that that top bit of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that that you finally, after kind of progressing through the stages of life and getting the mm. shelter and security that you need and a rewarding or fulfilling career, and then you finally decide to give back when you when you self actualize. My experience, direct experience from interviewing thousands of young people, tells me that the giving back part is now as important as anything else at the very beginning. So it's almost like the top of the triangle has tipped forward and inverted. And when young people I know are making very early life decisions before they've established security or really a clear plan, they know that whatever they're going to do, an actualized version of it where they contribute is really, really important. And it only gets more important as they progress up the hierarchy of needs. And that means we're not going to have the phraseology of my generation, the generation above me, which is, you know, one of giving back once you've achieved success because this is not going to be a group who would take in the first place. So that giving back equation won't even exist. And that's what makes it so exciting. This isn't you know, the, the slow moving CSR or, or businesses that we, we really, we really risk uh, over congratulating themselves for you know, a non polluting strategy or perhaps having, you know, one diverse member on their board. This is, you know, people who I think are going to really, really fundamentally rethink things. Yeah, it's great. I look forward to that. What? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you so obviously? Do there's a lot of inspiration in there, and, and uh, I, I sort of love the thoughts as well. But I mean, there's there's ideas on how to be more pirate too. Yeah, through throughout reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of anti-inspiration in a way. Um, I think there's, you know, like you're saying, what happens if we just constantly got change? I think that's kind of a, a, as a result of just endless inspiration without action. I think my favourite uh, equation is that talk minus action equals shit, and I don't didn't want it to be that. So I spent so much time workshopping the book as I was developing it to make sure that what I was saying or what we were, we were outlining could lead to individuals taking action on their ideas, mm. taking action on their passions and dreams and these these frustrations. So yes, many of the chapters end with a practical challenge and then there's some blank space that you can use to think and ideally fill it in. And once you consecutively complete these challenges, it ladders up to the formation of your own pirate code, which gives you a framework for actually, you know, going into and taking action, taking action on. Yeah, right. That's important. And that's the biggest the biggest surprise, surprise to me that it's done well as a book. It's maintained a bestseller status for, it's been kind of seven months. And so that's, what was really amazing is the amount of daily uh, interaction I've got with people who are getting in touch to tell me the action that they've taken on the back of it. That's great. Um, so, mm-hmm. much, so much so that uh, last week my right-hand pirate uh, started her first full-time day with me um, and she's now full-time uh, community manager to, to turn this moment and this movement into the, 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 the sum yeah. of its parts That's and great. some kind of potential for it. I, I managed to raise some money so I've got a full time salary from her which came it also came from one of the people who'd read the book and said they wanted to take action he's an investor so he invested in in her um, we're having the first pirate meetup, uh, which is an event that sold out in about 20 minutes of 100 tickets of people who are taking action on, on the back of it so I'm really going to swallow my own pill you know smoke my own pipe and you know not, not do you know just settle down to writing another book and away you go I'm going to spend this year really trying to understand if this is a community that can make a real difference and breathe life into it and, and honor the action that people have taken on in response to this book that i've created that's awesome we um we shall watch and follow and and see see where you lead it to i, I think you might be over here in australia at some stage huh i, I certainly will yeah there's um 
uh, there's been a couple of pirates down there. There was a, an amazing crew who in Adelaide got in touch. Yeah. And uh, I sent them a whole bunch of books and they did an Unfuck the World podcast. Uh, sorry, an Unfuck the World uh, hackathon um, under a Be More Pirate banner. There's a great guy called John over in Alice Springs and he's really, you know, it might be my, my pirate on the ground over there. Um, I've had a couple of different invitations. So, yeah, hopefully between these this, this growing community of pirates, we will be... Um, starting a Be More Pirate chapter Australia sometime soon. I hope to see you here. Mate, I've got some quick questions right. to uh, sh- to ask you um, before we wrap yeah, things sure. up here. And the first one I want, and it's probably changed a little bit since your transitions have happened, but what are your routines or what is a routine that you typically do every day that helps keep you in check and helps create your success in what you're doing? Um, I think the most important routine I have every day is not writing a to-do list but writing the, the what I won't do list. Um, trying to not write that endless list that's so long that you never really get anywhere in it, but to write the one, two, or maximum three things that if I do today will make all the difference. And that means consciously having to accept the things that you're not going to do. I think that's the the hardest but most successful bit of thinking that I do every day. And I don't always manage to do it. And But, you know, the days that you do say, right, the the one thing above all other things, even almost at the cost of the other things that I would choose to do today is this then at least you're always heading in the right direction. It's where the results come from, huh? Yeah, exactly. What um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Um, the advice that I think I've worked out, this one about um, you know, all that time you're spending worrying about what other people think isn't going to amount to dust. You know, it's only what you do that is going to remain and mm. get the with that I think I think uh, I'm so glad that I finally realised that the only person I have to prove anything to is, is myself <laughs> I spent years trying to prove myself to other people who you know, were never going to care or, or remember or were caught up in their own shit the only person I need to, to prove myself to is me it's taken me a long while to work that one out I think that that's sort of I, I feel anyway that it's normal for most people that you start yes. out you know worrying about what everyone thinks trying to prove yourself trying to be someone that perhaps you don't need to be and then you start realising that hey I can just fucking be what I want to be and go out there and do it and I don't give a shit what people think yeah 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 exactly um, I, I probably also have to advise my 20 year old self to smoke a bit less weed and get a bit more done yeah sure fair enough um, that's all the uh, late night parties that you were having eh? yeah exactly what um, I don't know my next question uh, what is your definition of success um, I think it is a definition that everybody needs to uh, arrive at. I think it's a really good um, question. And for me, I've thought about this quite a lot. Mine is freedom. And freedom, I think, is the thing that gets compromised the most as you grow up and you amass these responsibilities around you. So knowing what you mean, so freedom for me to have space to, to, to think, freedom for me um, you know, financially, but not to be led by the finances of it, but so that there is a degree of freedom mm. of choice. Mm. Um, freedom for me creatively to you know, explore ideas and, and make them, you know, which I've now discovered is the thing that kind of fulfills my, my soul. Yeah. Freedom for me to argue and make my point and, and, you know, there's so much going on politically that I want to have a voice for. So all of these different kind of things, I've realized they all kind of arrive in the sense of freedom. And if I have the freedoms to, to ex- exact those things, and then I am I am very very successful, and I feel very lucky to to be have with those freedoms. And it means that I also know what I have to protect. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. No, I'm certainly very relevant. I think for for me too, um, that sense of freedom in in those aspects as well. 
Yeah, yeah. What? And then you, you know, you, then you, you realise that comp- compromise is worth fighting for, but then you realise what well, you won't compromise because then yeah, that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. What if someone was needing some change in their life? What advice would you give them? One bit of advice if they're looking for just change: start exercising your rule-breaking muscle. Like the same way that we think of eating five veggies a day or getting seven hours sleep or whatever your daily routines are, pick a rule every single day and break it. Just a small one, just a silly one, you know, whether it's walking or whatever it is, uh, start breaking them. And very quickly you begin to see how much of what we think of rules are just patterns, habits, precedents, hmm. you know, other people's bad habits. And we all just kind of, apart from a few really sensible regulatory frameworks or laws <laughs> that are designed actually sensibly to protect us. Most of it is just other people's bad habits. So when when you start the the, the power, I think that you can begin to feel of, of stepping into a space of rewriting your own rules or taking accountability of it and stopping whinging about what everything was wrong and just you know pushing back on it is a very powerful muscle to begin to develop. Yeah, I like it. What would be your final meal if it was your last one? I have a guilty um, pleasure of enjoying plain food, like you know, <laughs> those kind bread. of funny little, the funny little trays that you get when you're you're having a, having a flight. I love them. I don't know why. You know, the things that everyone hates. Um, and I oh, me too. Yeah, I love flat food. Yeah, man, I really love it. So uh, it might be that it's a bit of a weird one. Because it's novel, that. I think I enjoy the novelty of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all perfectly packaged in this little con- it's just weird. You don't know what it is, and you get it out. And actually, it doesn't taste too bad. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to get yeah, two. two. I always get two. So, yeah, exactly. I get to try and get two, and then two of those little mini wines, and you're, you're off to the races. It's a good time. Yeah, I dig that. Those little things. Um, what What is a favourite leisure activity? Um, reading. I I didn't know how much I enjoyed it. I always took it for granted until you've got kids and you know then you realise how hard it is to like even read two pages at the end of the day and stay awake. Um, mm. And I think it's also taken on a new meaning form because I had such a disregard for education um, that I almost kind of rallied against reading or anything that felt like it was educational. Yeah. And now I my my thirst for knowledge and learning knows no bounds and if I if I could possibly afford to one day I'd love to go to university and study I, I, you know so I maybe that doesn't sound like a leisure activity but no, the, the I, no I've sort of found the found the love for it later in life too really because um, I was the same yeah I yeah because we got... ma- making making time to go to talks and and you know attend lectures and then read around a topic but that the thrill of it is just yeah, and, and going back great. to having that freedom to learn the yes. stuff that you want to learn, you know, and I think that's where the problem was at education, we're forced to learn shit that we don't really appreciate, and maybe we, we weren't shown how to appreciate it, but, um, you know, it just was, it seemed irrelevant, you know. Yeah. Um, I yeah, guess you yeah, probably yeah, experienced yeah. that liberty, um, a lot of giving those youth the freedom to learn in a way that satisfied their own passions and purposes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, rather than the shit that we seem to want to fill their heads with. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I like it. Um, what's on that note? What is a, what is one book that you pass down to your children or future generations, other than your own? Um, it's a bit of a classic, but I've only discovered it recently. And it's "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. um, the uh, psychologist who found himself in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. 
um, and then writes this you know really quite short book, not really about the Holocaust, but about how he survived it and the lessons that we have and, and man's search for meaning. Mm. And it's just, I only read it last summer. Uh, yes, so I'm still reeling, still reeling from how incredible uh, it is. And not just how profound one person's you know, method of surviving such an, in, in, in intense and mm. extreme conditions, but the, the lessons he draws and how fundamental they are to where we go next. And I think that we spend so much time with, with the challenges that we face and we can argue about what president said this or what's gone wrong here, but we, we're often dealing in surface uh, responses. And, you know, actually we need to really connect with some deeper thinking. And I think Frankel nails it mm. better than anything I've ever read. Yeah, that's cool. What quote would you text or tweet to the entire population of the world? Quote or um, message or... I had to come up with a summary for the book in one line and it is this is the biggest mistake that we can make is to believe the way things are is the way things have to be yeah that's cool alright do you believe we all have a hidden why a purpose yeah of course of course I think that's that's the job to be done you know is to is to understand it better and to be active in pursuing and trying to find it and understand it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because it's sort of open for interpretation. I sort of don't believe we all have one, but I certainly search, think that your second part of the answer was searching for it is, is what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, my, the closest thing I had to this was I designed a, a little graph called the purpose curve, and I used to use it when working with young people. And along one yeah, classic kind of chart model, one axis is inspiration um, and the other axis is experience. And you can take someone from not having any experience or any inspiration, you know, so total stasis, I have no why, I have no purpose. And if you push them through multiple experiences, one day they're going to find something that they enjoy. One day they will find something that they connect with. And then yeah. if you push them up some kind of, you know, the inspiration levels and you know, there's, there's a degree of, you know, oh, actually, this is exciting, all that. And, and, and you then hit the axis and the day where you go, I quite like that and I might be quite good at it. Because I think that there's a danger of too much being just caught up in the why. You know, I, you know, I love what you stand for and right through to Simon Sinek and the whole start with why movement I think is great. But actually, I think there's as much of a power to be determined from and then how, <laughs> what, I get on with it. Like, and I think when inspiration meets determination, that's when... That's when it happens. That's when you change your life. So you yeah. go, I quite yeah. like this, and I, I, I might be good at it. I want to do it. Then you know that's when you hit the purpose curve, or the, all the kids that I've ever seen. It's all explained. That's when they can mm. change their lives, or they can move out of gangs, or they can move back into education. And, and actually, once you're on the purpose curve, it's it's harder to to get you off it than it was to get you on it. Yeah, that's when you really start connecting with the why, and that's what I, I talk about in my book that I'm trying to get published is. Um, you know, you, you, you can search for your why immediately on the spot right now and start with that. Um, but really what happens is in the journey, you, by taking action, having those experiences, you really develop that why. Uh, and that's when you really discover, you know, what you're all about and what your purpose is. And, and that'll change too, you know, as you progress yeah. and, and go through exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think sometimes it's really daunting for people to think, what's my why, you know? And if it's not, if it's not really meaningful and profound, who am I? Um, 
And there's a question in one of the challenges that I ask as the book progresses, and I didn't really realize how helpful it was going to be for people um, in that journey. And it's just simply, can you name three values that you would fight for? And when I say fight, I mean, you know, you'd actually stand up and hit someone that, you know, you'd, you'd, risk, your, you'd risk something that you loved, you'd fight for it. Mm. Um, Good question. And most people can't. Most people can't name three values that they'd fight for. And if you can name one and you really mean it, you know, you'd risk what you own, or you'd risk all that which you hold dear for it, then it's a really useful stepping stone towards the big questions like why. Hmm. I'm going to take myself on that journey tomorrow. Um, I'll probably do it tonight. Um, no, it's a really well, good question, and it's it's an interesting one because off the top of my head, I, I yeah, I, I'd like to think I could answer it, but I probably can't. Um, yeah, but well, that's, that's and I'm quite that's a peaceful person paradox. too, so perhaps I just don't think I need would fight for anything, regardless of how yeah. much I value it. But um, yeah, interesting, interesting question. Yeah, what, I mean, what can't you walk past in the street if you see it happening? What would have to come to your door? You know, what, at what point are you out in the street with your fists raised? You know, and in that, I think if you know that parameters. It helps you if, if you if you know your values so clearly that it helps you make decisions. You will make better decisions, and it's the decisions that we make that end up being the actions that will be remembered for. Mm. So yeah, there's, a, there's a there's a there's a line here that can be really useful and stop you you know wondering why the fuck did I do that? Um, and whilst it sounds risky and scary, actually it, it will protect you because you will make better decisions about yeah, compromising your life with, with those values, and it feels so yeah. good. Um, that's really cool. Last question. What do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? So this speaks to the last point. So when I did the exercise on me, I, I realized that my the value I would fight for is fairness. And I I can't move past abject unfairness. If, you know, it's a bit of great annoyance cool. to my wife and, and anybody else. <laughs> if it's not fair, I just – and even if it doesn't, if it doesn't help <laughs> the thing, I will argue – but if that's unfair, I, no, no, we need to make that fair. Um, hmm. And you know, I'll step into. Uh, I can't let somebody uh, that's, that's near me or in front of me, you know, be treated un- unfairly. You have to get involved, and, I, and that's what motivates me. And I think that's what ultimately motivated me to start liberty, the unfairness that these kids face. And I think that's. You know, I think the, the great unfairness in the world is what I'm trying to point at with this book. That you know, this this, this beautiful model of modern capitalism that has done so much for the world is now unfair and systematically pushing wealth in one direction and and screwing over the majority and it's not that you know we need to do away with it wholly but we need to make it fair well it swings back to your earlier point about freedom as well um something you yes. said you know is really a powerful point for you and, and really fairness is about that and you know we see less of it in this world because it, it doesn't seem yeah well I think there's probably more fairness than there ever has been before, but um, yeah, I can certainly see where you're coming from. Yes, yes, that's exactly yeah. that point, mate. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Sam. Lee, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. They were great questions. It's really, it's really interesting as well because I've done a few interviews around the book, and then you know I never want to be as formulaic, so I try not to prepare anything too much. And actually, you've taken us on a really interesting, interesting journey. So thank you very, very much indeed. I've really enjoyed it. That's that's great, and I hope the uh, audience has enjoyed it as well. Um, I'm going to stick the link to your book in the show notes if they haven't already got a copy. So check it out, guys. Support the show by using those links. Episode 739. Um, with Thanks Sam and um, mate all the links are in there for you as well so hopefully people will connect reach out and um, 
let's continue yeah, we'll this journey and maybe we can um, touch base when you're in and Australia. Any, yeah, and if anyone's listening and interested in, in that, you know, I am going to try and make it out there. And, and like I say, I've already got John and one or two others on the ground who are beginning to try and make things happen. So if you would like to get involved, then just you'll find me on any of the Be More Pirate links. Um, me and my right-hand pirate now, she's here, um, to reach out and say hello. Hit us up when you've um, got that plan in place. Um, maybe if it's this year, towards the end of the year, whenever it is. Um, we should touch base again and do a second round. I definitely will. All right, man. Cool. Okay. Been a pleasure. Great. Guys, check it all out. Thanks very much, Cheers, Sam. Cheers. See you guys. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon